Amen. Thank you, Brad. So good morning. It's good to see you this morning, isn't it? It's fun to all be in uh, one service together. Uh, it's fun to see the room full, and so excited to be here with you this morning. We continue in a series. Actually, we're going to finish it today. Uh, we called it God's Playground, uh, talking about the law and the Ten Commandments given to us in Exodus 20 as we wrap up. Uh, we've been in Exodus for this entire year, and uh, this morning we, we finish with a look at uh, the Fourth Commandment. David Brooks uh, who writes for the New York Times, his two recent books on character. I've been reading them both as I've been making kind of the high school senior graduation uh, tour here the last couple of weeks. And I thought he was fairly insightful uh, at the beginning of his latest book uh, where he began to talk about moral ecologies. And he, he just traced out multiple generations that really my generation is at the center of. Uh, whereas the moral ecology of the mid-19th century is much different from what we are launching our kids out into today, which is on our minds as we get ready to send a, a senior to college this year. My grandparents' generation faced the Great Depression and two world wars, and as a result, uh, their value system was shaped by those experiences. They valued community and institutions. It was a group-oriented moral ecology that placed an emphasis on a person's duty to the larger society. Uh, which can be summed up in one of the most famous lines of that part of the century when uh, President Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It also, though, tolerated a lot of racism and sexism. So in the next generation, my parents' generation, the pendulum swung all the way to the other side. Respect for authority became rejection of authority. Duty was replaced with doing your own thing. Expressive individualism and, and uh, personal freedom became the most cherished parts of life so that by the time that my kids are now headed out into the world, it is now a culture of hyper-individualism hyper characterized by the freedom to define right and wrong for yourself and to live according to whatever moral standard you choose, ultimate authority residing with you, with the God within, we even say, and the absolute privatization of meeting, total freedom from any social constraint or institution, this just project of personal freedom. But here's the problem, as David Brooks puts, puts it, he said, freedom sucks. And he goes on, he says, it leads, and this is the whole basis of the books he's writing, he says, it leads to a random, busy life with no discernible direction, no firm foundation, nothing solid. And so the commencement speeches going on all across our country in these days are full of bad advice that nurtures the selfism that keeps overpromising and underdelivering. We're drowning in freedom. What we need are the right limits. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions, according to the Bible. It is living within the right set of restrictions, the ones that fit the realities of our own nature and the way the world works. We need a playground with walls within which all of the good stuff in life can run wild. And that's why we have these commandments here in Exodus chapter 20. They are the walls of a playground. The, this is the only place, this is the only place where you can be happy and fulfilled within the confines of God's authoritative word. And so the only way to find life is to lose it, Jesus said, to love God with everything first, and then to love others ahead of yourselves, to refuse the temptation to self-definition and to submit to God in your religious commitments, in your relationships, in your sex life, and as our topic this morning, in work and rest as well. And so we're not taking the commandments one by one. 
Redeemer Southwest, our, our daughter church, is doing that. So if you're interested in that, you can find them on the app or online. We are looking more big picture. But what we want to do today is, before we leave this, we want to zoom in on the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. And I want to do it for two reasons, okay? And the first is uh, that this is a real problem for me. So I am talking this morning. I'm preaching to myself a lot. I told Ashley before uh, we left the house this morning, don't judge me as I'm talking to other people about rest, because I know I don't do this well, okay? I really don't. It's a big problem for me. And the best stuff to preach is what you need to be preaching to yourself. But I want to also say it's a problem, particularly for us as, as a congregation as well. If you think about these Ten Commandments, think about this. We would hardly ever publicly tout our violation of, of any of them except one, this commandment. We love to brag about how busy we are and treat it as a moral achievement, and it's not. And so I think it warrants special attention to us this morning. And you'll see, we're going to read from Exodus chapter 20, the actual command there given to us in the Ten Commandments, but then also from Hebrews chapter 9, and then uh, just a verse from 1 Corinthians 5, piecing this together where all of these places where the Bible, because the Bible talks about work far beyond uh, just here in Exodus chapter 20. It's a really big subject in the scriptures, and so we pulled a couple verses out. So if you have uh, the insert that we've given you, you can see the scriptures there. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. You can try to follow along in the Bible as we hop to these different places. Uh, but I'll read this to us, okay? So beginning first with Moses' command to the people in Exodus chapter 20, the fourth commandment. This is God's word. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, for you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or the, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. And then from the New Testament in Hebrews, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And from Corinthians, therefore, my brothers, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor, your work is not in vain. This is God's word. We want to see from these three texts, the Sabbath kind of in three acts. Acts, Act number one would be the creation Sabbath that God establishes at the very beginning of, of human history. Act two would be the weekly Sabbath that Moses is talking about in this fourth commandment that, that we are now engaging in or should be engaging in in obedience to the Lord. Act three would be this big word, the eschatological Sabbath that Jesus has accomplished and has already brought in and inaugurated that will soon be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we want to look at it in those three parts, beginning first with what we mean there in your outline by the creation Sabbath. Before we get to a theology of rest this morning, we need to take a few minutes to talk about a theology of work. And we can do that from the creation narrative because the Sabbath command here in Exodus chapter 20, you'll see in verse 11, is rooted in the creation account. And in Genesis, both work and rest are God-given and good. And so first, we want to affirm that work is, is that. It's God-given and good. Work was given to the man and the woman 
before the fall, which means that it's part of the goodness of what God has created. We work because we're made in the image of God who is always at work. Jesus said this, John 5, 17, my father is always at work to this very day and I'm also working and so we should be too. It's important to develop a good work ethic. It's something that we desire for our children. Uh, I've been gone for the past couple of weeks. One of the things that I was able to do was to go on a work trip with Canaan's senior class. Uh, the school has a partnership with a, uh, a summer a camp north of Seattle, and man, we, we worked. We, we spent the first uh, day widening a trail by hauling gravel in a wheelbarrow up this huge hill, this huge pile of gravel uphill both ways, barefoot in the snow, you know, for a quarter mile or so, and then spreading it back and forth and back and forth. And then the second day, we attacked an an invasive species of plants, digging it up and pulling out by hand for hours and hours and hours. And of course, I was a chaperone, so it was my job to set an example. And I'll be honest, I was determined to outwork the kids. And that was a really bad idea. Because I am forgetting that I am too old to go toe-to-toe with 18-year-olds in manual labor. So somewhere along the line, I changed strategies and started to cheerlead. (laughs) I still worked, but just not quite as hard, especially as the positive attitudes began to wane. And so uh, later in the second day, as we're pulling these weeds out, literally shoveling down and just pulling these things out and heaping them up in big piles, I'm, I'm walking around saying, guys, this is great. We're pushing back the curse. We're kicking Satan in the teeth. Isn't this awesome? And they just looked at me like I was an alien from another planet. But I wanted them to get a true sense of what work is. That really is what work is. Work is given to us in Genesis as a way of pushing back the curse and kicking Satan in the teeth. It's what work does. As image bearers of God, we work to subdue the earth and bring dominion. So work matters. And we should work hard at whatever God has given to us to do. Colossians 3, 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily, Paul says, as for the Lord. It's an interesting word there. I learned something new in that verse uh, this week. The Greek word there is the Greek word psyche, which is translated soul. It refers to kind of the, the inner parts of your life. So all of our work should have soul. Don't you like that? If you like soul music, that probably makes sense. You know soul music when you feel it. It just has a different kind of vibe going on, and all of our work should have soul too. There should be spiritual energy behind it, no matter what it is, no matter how old you are. If you're a student in your studies, if you volunteer in children's ministry, in your prep and in the enthusiasm for that, in household chores or in whatever job you hold, but especially there, whatever vocation you give yourself to. So let me just take a minute to comment here that the work that you do at your job should have some soul to it. And for that, I think there are two things. I think on the one hand, it has to be a labor of love. You have to, in other words, you have to be able to, to connect how it is helpful to others and meaningful in the advance of the kingdom of God. It has, it has to be meaningful. All work is, but you have to be able in your own, in your own mind and heart you have to be able to make the connection in concrete ways so that you're properly motivated to do the work that that you've been called to do. And then it also, at the same time, has to fit your insights, your abilities and your talents and your passions and your interests. You have to feel the wind at your back 
in your doing of it. That's the ideal job. It's what I, it's what I want for my kids. I want them to find that, that job where, where it truly is a labor of love and sacrifice and service for the greater good in God's kingdom. And it also, it fits who God's made them to be because it's not the paycheck or the retirement package or the status the job brings that matters. What matters is how can I use what's inside to do the most good for my community and help as many people as possible in service to the kingdom of heaven. And if that's not where you're coming from in your work, then the problem is, is that it will become either too important or too unimportant. So you'll burn out, you'll work too much, you'll be all wrapped up in the work and neglect the other parts of your life, or you'll shut your heart off, you'll just do it for the paycheck, but your heart won't be in it. There won't be any soul in the work that you do. And what we need is to keep work in its proper place, in its proper balance, and that's where the Sabbath command comes in because we're told that work is God-given and good, but guess what? So is rest. Six days God worked. On the seventh, he rested, we're told in Exodus 20, 11. And notice that rest was also given before the fall, which means, listen, which means that we don't rest because work has gone wrong. We rest because just like with work, we're made in the image of God who rested on the seventh day. We were made to work, but not to overwork. And when you think about it, God, did he really need to rest? Of course not. God did not need to rest. He wasn't tired on the seventh day. That's not why he rested. So why then? And I think uh, a lot of people have written about this, but Walter Brueggemann uh, said it best, I think, when he said this on a little book on Sabbath keeping that I read a few years ago. He said, God is not a workaholic. God is not a Pharaoh. Remember, this is written to people who've just come out of slavery in Egypt. He says, God does not keep jacking up production schedules. To the contrary, God rests confident, serene, at peace. And God's rest, moreover, bestows, listen to this, God's rest bestows on creatureliness a restfulness that contradicts the drivenness of the systems of Pharaoh. The atmosphere of Eden and that of the new heavens and the new earth when we get there one day, in both cases is restfulness, not drivenness. Six days of work. Six days of work. Most of us only work five. Six days of work, but still restfulness. Drivenness was Egypt, slavery. And you see it even in the person that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 11, exhausted and overwhelmed by their work, working with a physical, mental, and emotional deficit. That's a sign that your work is not staying within the limits God has put on it in the Sabbath command. It's either become too important or too unimportant. We need rhythms of work and rest daily, weekly, monthly, seasonally, even year to year. And the Bible speaks about all of these. But as a starting place, secondly, we see that the command here in Exodus 20 institutes a weekly Sabbath, a day of Rest each week, one in seven, and that's the rhythm. Now, it brings up all kinds of questions. What is work and what is rest? Does it have to be Sunday or can it be another day? Uh, and these are questions that we need to answer, but unfortunately, I have to tell you, not this morning. Instead, what we want to do is, again, taking this bigger picture, we want to ask this question. We want to say, how does the command given to us here, this Sabbath, this call to Sabbath, how does it redeem and bring new life both to work 
and to rest because the context for Sabbath in Deuteronomy, when the Ten Commandments are restated by Moses just before the people go into the Promised Land, is not in the context of creation. There, interestingly enough, it's in the context of redemption. We are people who've been set free from enslavement to our own selfish desires and also to working to accomplish and provide for ourselves. God's mighty acts of salvation mean we can approach work and also rest in a profoundly different way than maybe we have in the past and surely in a profoundly different way than the rest of the culture does. Okay? Let's talk about work first. And what we see here is that the weekly Sabbath puts a limit on work. That's helpful in two ways, I think. First, it's a weekly Sabbath that limits the output of our work. So the whole idea of a Sabbath day every week is to cut down on the amount of work you're able to accomplish within the week. It's a forced inefficiency. There are seven days, but you only get six to get your work done. So we... So you won't get as much done as you could if you worked all seven days of the week. And that's a good thing, see? That's the way it's supposed to be. Because we, most of us, struggle to self-regulate with work because we're just as much in slavery as Israel was in Egypt. But we're just enslaved to success or financial gain or comfort or productivity or whatever the case might be. But secondly, this weekly Sabbath limiting the output of our work also limits what work can do. Work doesn't work. It doesn't save. It doesn't provide for you. You can't work yourself to the life you want and need. So Walter Brueggemann again, he says, the alternative on offer in the Sabbath is the awareness and practice of the claim that we are situated on the receiving ends of the gifts of God. And to be so situated is a staggering option because we are accustomed to being on the initiating ends of things. Sabbath is an invitation to receptivity, an acknowledgement that what we need is given and not seized. Isn't that great? Does that breathe new life in anybody, anybody's soul? It should. You can live as if everything depends upon you with an overestimation of personal responsibility and you will wear yourself out trying to do everything right and order your world perfectly. Or you can live within the God-given limits here of work and learn a whole other way of life. But you see, the second thing is the Sabbath also touches not just our work, but also our rest. It redeems our work, but it also redeems our rest. And it does that by, whereas it limits our work, it actually is expanding our understanding of rest in a couple of significant ways as well. First, I think, is that there's a, a weekly Sabbath expands rest beyond just that day into the other six. Our culture is obsessed with self-care. Take a break. Go to the spa. Prioritize you. And I just got to say to you, that's not Sabbath. It doesn't mean take a day off. Sabbath means give the day to God. Look there in verse 10 of Exodus 20. It is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So Sabbath doesn't mean, listen, hear me, Sabbath doesn't mean to, out of sheer exhaustion, to now collapse into catatonic narcissism. But it's what we see. And, and the problem is, is the further that you go into bad working and overworking, then the further the pendulum swings into bad resting and overresting. And there is such a thing as overresting. The Sabbath isn't an excuse to overwork all the other days of the week. It's not recharging our batteries for the next week 
next, week, next week's work. It is an end into itself. It is a good that is to be pursued for its own sake that should make its way into our work on the other days. We're after healthy rhythms of work and rest and work and rest, remember. And so secondly, I think the weekly Sabbath expands our rest beyond even the categories of just non-work. So we need to think about rest beyond just it being the cessation to work. God did not rest on the seventh day of creation because he was tired. His rest was an enjoyment of what came of his six days of work in the creation. So look there at verse 11. The Lord blessed the Sabbath, they were told. And that word describes God's deep satisfaction and joy in all that he had made. He took the day off in order to step back and just say, man, this is great. Not because he needed a break, but because he was happy. And he wanted the opportunity to express and enter into and experience the joy that he had in all that he had made. And so if you're doing your work right, you won't need to collapse at the end of every week. What the Bible calls rest is something more than just leisure or amusement. The opposite of doing is not not doing. God is never not doing. The opposite of doing, if we're following God's example, as the text suggests, is delight. And so as I think Kevin DeYoung or someone, someone I read said this, the Sabbath is a day of get to at the beginning of a week of have to. And I really like that. Dan Allender wrote a book about Sabbath that I read on my sabbatical two summers ago, and it, honestly, it annoyed me at first. Uh, and, then, and then it surprised me, and then it changed me. Uh, and some, <laughs> it's still changing me, let's say that, okay? Some profound ways that are still working themselves out in my life, I think. And he said this, he said, the Sabbath is not a day off. It's a day to intentionally and passionately pursue delighting in God and all his good gifts. So it's not a day to vacate but a day that we should intentionally fill. And he asked this question, he says, what would I do for a 24 hour period of time if the only criteria was to pursue my deepest joy? So what if the problem, see, this is what I've been thinking about. What if the problem is not overworking? What if the real problem, what if the reason that we overwork and the real problem that needs to be solved is that we don't know how to do joy? is that our joys are all messed up. Like the boy in C.S. Lewis's illustration who's content making mud pies in the slum because he can't even conceptualize what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Lewis says we're too easily pleased. And so Dan Allender says that when you're thinking about what to fill the Sabbath with, with here's what you ask. And it's a great question. He says, he says, ask this of everything you do on the day God has set apart. Will this be a break or will it be a joy? Because if you're just looking for a break, then it's a sign that you're in a bad routine. But if you're doing it right, if you're staying within the limits, six days of work should lead to a Sabbath day where you have the energy and the imagination to pursue the things that bring the greatest joy. But let me say that this enjoyment isn't just doing your own thing. Isaiah 58 speaks about this. Again, it doesn't mean you just blow off church because you don't feel like going or there's a better offer, okay? The pastor's not saying that. If I have to be here, you have to be here, okay? No, I'm just kidding. 
But let me say, there's no joy apart from God. There's no happiness without him. And so it's a Sabbath to the Lord, remember. It's his day. We call it the Lord's day. And so here's what, uh, Isaiah, what the Lord says in Isaiah 58. If you call the Sabbath a delight, and if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasures or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. That's a great phrase. And, and he just means that pursuing our deepest joy and making God a priority and showing up for this service on Sunday are the same thing. Now, how? Really quickly, I, there's not... There's a whole lot of how that probably comes to mind here, but we just don't have the time this morning. Maybe we, can, maybe we can do some of this another time. But I have two pieces of advice about how to do a weekly Sabbath. Uh, and one is from the text. One's just from experience. And the first is you'll notice that the Lord twice says uh, that this is a holy day. So in verse 8, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Therefore, at the end, the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So that word holy frames this entire piece of text in Exodus chapter 20. And uh, that word holy is a word that means different or set apart. And so if the day is going to be what God intends for it to be, that is the one kind of category with which to define it. It should be a day that is set apart from the other days of the week. It's a day where there are a bunch of different things. You do different things. You engage in different things than you would do all the other days of the week. Make that kind of your guiding principle for how to get started with uh, celebrating and remembering this day. But then the other thing is, as I've learned, is it's something that you will not ever accomplish in your life if you don't make preparations. Uh, the Jewish people are really great about this. They prepare all day the day before and even you know, into the week for the day that is the day of rest. And so make, make it the day around which the rest of the week is planned. To do Sunday different, you have to do Saturday night differently. And to do Saturday night differently, you have to do the rest of the weekend differently. And so you can see how it, it makes its way back into all of the rest of the week. So the whole week has to be geared towards the one day. I, just, I, I thought of this, one piece of advice. I think, we, I think we ought to treat Sunday the way most of us typically treat Monday. In other words, so much preparation goes into what's going to happen at 8 o'clock in the morning when I get to the office on Monday morning. Why don't we, why don't we do that with, with the Sabbath? And so I've started writing, and this is, you should crack up at this, every week I write, I have a big long to-do list of my week, and every week at the bottom of my to-do list I put a big uh, emphatic circle around Sabbath, and then I write um, mind, body, soul, fun. And I've try to figure out something I'm going to do to each of those things, and then every week I don't do the things that I plan to do. Your pastor is a sinner. Isn't that good news for you? So pray for me and pray for my family, because this really is something that I've got to figure out. But we, and you know what's hard about it for us is, is this day's a work day, so what day is supposed to be, you see what I'm saying? There's some challenges for people who do what I do for a living. And so it's, it's a difficult thing, and it's something we all wrestle with. But just, I've started to make preparations for the things that I don't ever get to do. But at least, I, hey, I've made at least that much progress, right? And so we see this call to a weekly, a weekly Sabbath. But third, and lastly, before we come to the table this morning, then this call to work and rest well, well, how do you do it? How do you find these right rhythms limiting your work and expanding your rest and I would say to you, as it happens when you realize that the Sabbath command was meant to point us to the work of Jesus Christ, 
which is uh, talked about in Hebrews here, or what I've called the eschatological rest, the end time rest of God that we can enter into even now. And so in order to keep work within the proper limits, we have to be set free from what Tim Keller calls the work underneath the work. And the work underneath the work refers to the inner murmur of self-reproach that we all live with. And it creates a need to prove ourselves through our work or to make a name for myself or to establish, establish a righteousness through my success at work, to chase away the feelings of insignificance that, that haunt all of us, like Rocky Balboa in the first movie, uh, which nobody watched but actually won the Academy Award where they asked him why he was working so hard, because that was his thing, right? He worked harder than everybody else. And why are you working so hard? And he said, I want to go the distance because then, I, then I'll know I'm not a bum. And he does it, right? He goes the distance. But obviously it didn't work because they kept making movies. And every movie is about the same theme, Rocky proving he's not a bum. And not only that, now they have a new franchise of movies called Creed. And those are all about the guy they're fighting to make sure that he feels like he's not a bum. And so something about this thing doesn't work. So this work of needing to prove yourself with the other work underneath the work is the need to provide for yourself through your work, to have the money and the influence and, and so forth that you need to have the life that you want. And this, it's this, it's this inner murmur of self-reproach and um, lack of confidence in God's care that make the work itself so exhausting. And so the only way to be free is to know, is to know that all the work, all the work that we need, all the work that must be accomplished, all, all the stuff that has to be done has already been done because Jesus Christ came into the world to do that work. In a life of obedience to God, he established a perfect record and on the cross, in the ultimate act of, in the ultimate, um, act of obedience and sacrifice, he, dying for our sins, cried out the words we all know, it is finished. And what those words meant was that the work of providing the righteousness that we need and securing the Father's love and provision for us has been done. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. And do you know what that means? It's what the Hebrews passage says here. Look there, that little verse in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse, uh, 11, or verse 10, where it says, There remains a Sabbath rest, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? Listen, what that verse means, it's astounding that verse is, it means that a Christian is someone who's able to look at their work the way God looked at his. That through Jesus, you can look at yourself and your life and all of your messiness and incompleteness and sin even, and you can say, man, that's good. Because that's the way God looks at you. But it's not because your work's good. It's because he looks at you through the work of your Savior, Jesus. And all the work that you need to do to get that verdict, to get those words hanging over your life, has been done so you can do your work without the work underneath. That's the freedom that's offered to us here. And so being yoked to Jesus doesn't mean that there isn't any work to do. It means that he does the heavy lifting. And the yoke there is the symbol of 
work, but his yoke is easy, it says, and his burden is light, which means the pressure is off. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to provide for yourself. Do you know that? Should I say that again? You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to provide for yourself. All that's already been done. And so a Christian is a person who's resting in Jesus, but that's also what allows us to experience the expanse of rest that the Sabbath command offers. Dan Allender gets to the heart of it. I think he says, it is nearly impossible to believe that God wants us to have a day of wonder, delight, and joy. But why is that so impossible to believe? The gospel says that indeed, that is God's heart for us. God wants your joy. Think of the links that he's gone to secure your joy. Think of the price that has been paid for him to ensure your absolute satisfaction in him and all that he has made. So much so that he said, take a whole day and fill it with the things that bring you the most joy. And then let it spill out over into the other days of the week too. When we do that, you know what we're doing? We're practicing for heaven. Because that's what heaven's going to be like. The never-ending, never-fading experience of rest and delight in all that God is and all that God does. Doesn't that sound great? If you're here and you're a Christian, don't you want that? If you're here and you're not a Christian, can you imagine something like that being possible? It is. It is. That's what we're being called to here. But just one more thing before we move on. Uh, because one of the things, and maybe, and I, I'm an, I, this is my personality, I'm an Enneagram 3, and so probably this speaks to me. I hope it speaks to you as much as it does to me. But one of the struggles in work for me is that I know that, that no matter how hard I work, I will never get done all I want to get done in this life. Does that bother anybody else? Work will always feel incomplete to some degree. You'll always go to bed with more things left on your to-do list. If you sweep the floors, they'll be dirty by the time you're finished sweeping them. But especially if we begin to practice these things in our lives because we're actually talking about working less and that's okay. Because here Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so this is, this is the other gospel promise that significantly touches our work, I think, that no matter what, our work is not in vain. So J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a short story about this called Leaf by Niggle. And he wrote it because uh, he got overwhelmed by the work of writing Lord of the Rings because, of course, in writing the book, he created languages. Hello? He created languages and whole histories and worlds and all this kind of stuff. And he got to a place where he was just overwhelmed by it, and he thought he probably was not going to finish it before he died. And so he wrote the short story to comfort his own heart. And uh, the person there, Niggle, which is defined as working in a fiddling or ineffective way. So it's a parable even in the name. He was a painter whose life work was to paint a landscape. And he got in his mind uh, a leaf and then a whole tree and then an entire country beyond it. And he got to work painting this picture, but he kept getting distracted by helping other people and all these other things in his life. So when he got to the end of his life, he was in despair because all he had been able to accomplish was a single leaf. That was a beautiful leaf, but it was just a tiny single leaf and the rest was unfinished. But then, as the story goes, after death, he was brought into the heavenly country. And as he walked in the gates, there was a tree, his tree, finished 
with the landscape beyond it just as he had imagined. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that neat? And that's also, I think, what Jesus' it is finished means. It means that our work in this life may end unfinished. And it may end in marginal significance in the eyes of the world. But in heaven, in the permanently real world, that work, however small it may seem, will be part of the true reality that will be enjoyed forever. And that gives me so much hope that nothing we do in the Lord is in vain. It will all matter in greater ways than we can imagine forever and ever and ever, no matter how incomplete it remains in this life. Isn't that good news? Do you know what it means? Take a breath. How about we just spend this day taking a break from running the universe? Just for today? Because that's what Sabbath means. And it really, really is a gift. Amen? So let's pray. So, Father, we so need what you offer us here. And yet we are so unaccustomed to it. It is like breathing air we are not used to breathing. It's, it's, it's like an alien world that you're calling us to. And we have so much room to repent and to believe deeper in uh, the work that you have done for us. And so we pray just that. And we thank you that where we still struggle and strive to enter into this rest, you have given us helps like this meal that we now come to together where our faith is still languishing, where, uh, our, our, we, where we would say, oh Lord, we believe it, help our unbelief. You've said, I, that's exactly what I'll, I'll do. And so even now as we gather around this meal, would you impress upon us in an even a more powerful way the reality of the finished work of Jesus for us and of the rest that he now offers and extends to us that we might enter into it because it's in resting that we bring glory to you and that's our desire and so we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. That's right. I love, I love the sass in that song. There's a little sass in that song because you have to sing those words defiantly somewhat because this world is so full of darkness and pain and loss and sadness. And yet the hope of the gospel is just that, that, we, that this meal is just the dress rehearsal for the feast that we will enjoy together. Until we get there. We wander through a wilderness world, and we have to know the, the, the famous words of St. Augustine when he said, Lord, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so you're made to rest beneath the smile of God that, that, that these words promise you. That's what this benediction is. So hear these words, and then go resting uh, ahead of a day, of, of a week of working uh, to, to bring the kingdom and to see his will be done on earth. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.